Hello and welcome back to the Level Edit Podcast. Uh, today we've got a shorter podcast talking about all things planning, kind of a roundtable discussion on the subject. Um, I'm your host, Glenn Taylor, uh, or at Can't Be Left Blank on Twitter, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts. Hi, I'm Dan of Maybe Later Games. Uh, I work as a game designer and I'm currently working on a narrative adventure project. Hey, I'm Mida. I do all things games, UX, and a little bit of business. Great. So does anyone want to start off with their experiences with either group or individual planning for their projects? Uh, I will say that I have some, I've had some very good experiences and some horrendous experiences. So <laughs> it really does depend what group you're with, you know, what disciplines you have, um, how motivated people are, even sort of how disciplined people are to make sure that they're working on the correct dis- on the correct things. I've done a lot of game jams, and um, I remember the biggest team I was in was, oh my goodness, there was like nine of us, I think. So that was an enormous team for a weekend game jam, and uh, I kind of turned into like project manager slash designer, and uh, yeah, it just went horrendously. But yeah, more on that later. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think we've all got some not so nice stories of, you know, managing projects or at least working in teams when it comes to games. But personally, a lot of mine have generally been positive. Um, so my experience largely comes from working in studios. We have like the official boards and the methodologies and the tools, um, and working with people of different disciplines, you know, working on like massive projects which I've been okay, so it's been great to see get an insight into that, but then I've also done game jams as well, where because I've done a bunch of different things, I tend not to fall into a specific role like designer or whatever, so usually I get into the whole project lead thing, which is a weird role because I enjoy it, but I think a lot of people like putting it off or they don't like, you know, all the stuff like reading the game design document or just having to worry about timing and other things so that can be quite a challenge sometimes but yeah i think generally it's quite fun cool yeah i've had a little bit of the same experience with planning um i used to work at a startup that did a lot of kind of stand-ups every day to go through what people are doing uh there'd be group discussions about major ideas or narrative decisions that project tended to have slightly less focus on like the overall vision of the game which ended up kind of being a bit detrimental um but there was a lot of good to take out of that as well like having pulled discussions of everyone's ideas was very good and just knowing what everyone was working on was good i've done contract work as well which is always fun because uh planning kind of sets the expectations between you and whoever you're working with be it your kind of client or your clients engineers or the people who are going to end up giving you data um, and I've done a lot of personal planning, which has had success ranging from abysmal to pretty good. So, um, so what has everyone kind of learned over time with their individual experiences of planning? Like, is there anything you do differently now? I think it's probably a good idea to start with the tools that we use. I mean, the, the tools that are out there, uh, the ones that I use primarily are Trello. And I am a big fan of the Google Docs you know, shareable docs. I'm also currently using the Google Spreadsheets, which not a math fan of spreadsheets, but, you know, for my for my current project, the story game, um, that is something that I need to use. And it's just super handy to have all that data online because one of the problems with um, multiple people working on the same project is that you have to share assets. And if one asset gets updated, then you want the updated asset to be appearing in your game. And the Excel document we're actually using for um, for the script. So storing the script inside the Excel spreadsheet, that was just the easiest way to lay it out in order to display who's speaking, etc. what picture should be displayed. And uh, <laughs> I had a bit of a nightmare because um, I'm working with a writer currently, and I'm currently I'm doing half of the writing and all of the implementation, and she's doing the other half of the writing. And it means that if she writes anything on this this document and this script, you know, it's actually it's five thousand lines long now, I think. So uh, there's 
tons to be watching for that's been updated and for me to be able to see every tiny thing that she's updated and for me to be able to add that to every tiny thing that I've updated if we were working on two separate documents it was just a nightmare to collate that I actually eventually had to collate and our worlds collided and it took me about a week to update it properly so that is one big regret absolutely uh, using the online sharing tools is a huge help a huge help um so yeah, I would recommend Trello and the the uh, the Google the, the tools that are out there for Google. I have heard of Hack and Plan as well. And has anyone actually used that? Uh, I haven't heard of it before. Yeah, I used to use it for one of my other jobs, with varying success. Uh, it depends how you set it yeah. up. Yeah, it's you very yeah. much have to have a concrete idea of like how you're setting up, and then you need to stick to that because otherwise people are just adding things to different sections, kind of nearly willy nilly. Absolutely. So Hack and Plan, I believe, is split more by discipline. And you also have like a timeline system so you can sort of prioritize workloads, see what's coming now, see what's coming later, which is all well and good. But like I said, if people aren't using it properly, um, I imagine it could be also quite hard to navigate when you've got a really big project. Um, it wasn't too bad. It was more just um, especially when you're having stuff like you, you might have a section for like features that are being tested. And like maybe your programmer will put something in there and then the artist will be like, oh, that's not ready and move it back. And like there might be a constant like tug of war between like who's slotting things into which categories and if there needs to be more categories. And yeah, it's it's just a it's it's basically Trello, but with a couple of extra things. But it's not anything that makes it like distinctly different from Trello, in my opinion. Yeah. My personal opinion is just use Trello. <laughs> I think it's so much easier to read. It's a bit simpler. You know, you can't necessarily do time frames for work. But uh, I remember one of the game jams I was working on that was suggested that we use Hack and Plan. And everyone was like, Hack and what? And we were like, no, no, no. I'm overriding this. We're going to use Trello. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I presume Trello has GIF support and stuff too. Because I know Hack and Plan does. And that was one of the things I actually liked about it was you could put GIFs and... Uh... So when like um, <laughs> when people were seeing like oh this has been done they could actually see like a two second clip of it oh, instead of just saying like oh this mechanic works yeah I thought you said git um, oh no sorry uh, git first gif I'm with you oh, or gif if we pick anal yeah I think that's that's a really great learning point as well from that it's like you know when you're planning having visualization helps a lot especially when you have multiple different people in your team um so like the inclusion of gifts is a great way of doing that or i know i was watching a gdc talk um by a guy named matthew derby um and the way he's done his planning was actually using visual storyboarding for like the storytelling aspect uh, pre-production which I thought was really interesting because it helps you get your ideas across and facilitate discussion um, that's a huge part as well as like when you're planning something ensure that the things that you're saying are encouraging discussion and you're listening to different views and updating as you go along because um, I know there's mixed feelings about the tool called Jira I don't know if you've heard of it but it's quite a common game development tool at least in studios um, and it it's, it's basically just another planning tool, like an alternative to Trello, but it's much more like complex and it's used for like massive projects. So it has extra features and stuff like that. And it's something producers like a lot. But I know from what I've heard, um, people that do other roles tend to not like it as much. And part of that is because the visualization aspect of it or the complexity, give or take, that some people have. But it's really good for like, you know when you're doing design sprints and you have like the Kanban boards where you have like sticky notes and stuff like that. Um, so that's like a digital version of that. But I really enjoyed that in stand-ups as well when you've kind of got, you know, the different columns of like to do, in progress, in QA, done, and then you move the sticky notes across. But that's just because I like the physical aspect of it. And the like, the, like some people use color coding when they do that as well. So for me, like being able to see my progress in that way helps a lot. Just making it fun to plan because I think planning can be pretty boring as well. Sometimes, yeah, it's so always. satisfying. <laughs> like ticking stuff off my to-do list. I've recently started like boiling down my task list to bullet points, and I take a bullet point that's too big, and I'm like, ah, uh -uh, it's going in five bullet points now. 
<laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't know. It just keeps me really focused and on track because at the minute with the project being so big, there's so much to do. I'm just like, I need to just pick a thing and just do it. And like you said, it just it makes you feel good. Yeah, I think one of the main things is just having everything in one place and making sure people know where to go and how to use the tool that congregates all these things. Um, like I know sometimes I've, I've had issues where people are like, use these five things to track all these things. It's like, well, no, I only want either one place for issues or like bugs and one place for planning. I don't want five places for the same thing. Um, like one of the ones me and Nida have used is called real-time boards. Um, it's like a cloud-based kind of like infinite whiteboard and you can shove like anything in there. Um, another one I use locally is uh, called PureRef for reference images. Because that's another, like, you can stick pictures on, like, an infinite whiteboard and just zoom in, zoom out. Um, so I, I actually want to make a kind of infinite cloud-based tool that you can shove videos, you can shove GIFs, and everything just works. Because um, that kind of stuff just lets, you know, like, you can zoom out, go to a different area. It's almost like having a Minecraft map where you go to, like, different locations, and that's where the planning segment is for this part of the, of the software and stuff like that. And what was the whiteboard one called again? I think it's like real-time boards. Real-time boards. I think I'm f familiar with that. And on another game jam that I worked with, we used that primarily for brainstorming. Mm. We kind of had all of the different branches, and then it meant everyone could chuck a ton of ideas on, and then we would sort of slim it down. Um, I myself actually used it for a map as well. You know, so you said it's like sticky notes. Mm. The 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 map for Anachronist, the story game that I'm working on. Um, <laughs> previously, it was very blocky, and it was like you can either go north, east, south, or west. So it was great to just tie together the pieces that you could move through. And if there's like something blocking the way, like a cliff, etc., then uh, it didn't show you that. So, yeah, I used it for sort of physical space planning, although it's not always the best thing for that. But I do think it's really good for uh, initial mind mapping. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think they're really nice add-on tools to the whole like game design document process as well. Um, or they can complement each other and build on each other as well. Because I think when you're planning a game design document, it's really good for just like laying the foundation or like having a general guide. Um, not like a rigid guide, but more like you know simple concepts or features that you want in your game. Um, and then using these additional tools to kind of set up the tasks or like with real-time boards, maybe brainstorm the different concepts that you've mentioned in your game design document. Um, I know there's discussion around, you know, the need for these documents or how we use them because, you know, there's criticism of them being too rigid and um, not allowing for like iteration or change as you go along. Um, so I think pairing like a personally, so I'm not a producer, but I'm just thinking, like, hypothetically, you could have, like, a really basic game design document, and then from that, having, you know, these software tools to build on that is really helpful going along, because the whole design process of games in general is quite iterative and about improvement as you go along. But having that document from the get-go gives you, as a team, like, a vision that you kind of want to build on as you go along. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this um, a little bit before we started the podcast, but it's kind of the case of, like, you're never going to know everything that's going to happen with your development process. So the important things is that people on the team know where the game is going. If you're doing a build for, like, a an event, they know exactly what that's going to be. Um, everyone has the same vision of the game, which is a lot harder than it sounds to achieve. Um, and also that people know like who's responsible for what, you know, when stuff's going to be worked on, what what's the limits of what people have to do, um, things like that. And sometimes like having that rigidity, even if you don't stick to it, at least can kind of help people know what they're meant to be doing or what the current state of the project is. I think it's particularly important for scope. I think it's super important to think about what your scope is right at the beginning because it's so easy to get carried away. Feature creep, as we know, you know, you just fast stick into the feature and oh, it's missing this, it's missing this and that, and eventually you just end up with this gargantuan project that just seems to be never ending. Um, 
so yeah i think it's important to define scope really early on just so you know what you're building towards even if it's like multiple parts you know we'll have single player ready first and then we implement multiplayer um because it can be important to know where you're working towards if you know you're eventually implementing multiplayer that might change how you code stuff on the back end if you're doing the single player so um i think it's important to know all these steps in advance because that means you know it saves you having to go back and redo work that if you knew in advance you wouldn't have done it that way in the first place and it just kind of is a waste of time really so i think it can be important to define your scope early yeah and it, in a way it kind of fosters creativity if you don't be too rigid in that scope right because scope can be quite broad as well um but also understanding like your game design document isn't kind of your pitch of your game i think that's sometimes something you get stuck on like you know when when you're pitching your game to like you know businesses and stuff like that you won't tell them every single concept that you've thought of every every single feature that you're thinking about yeah it's more just giving them an overall concept idea what your game is maybe some research aspects but not being like we have xyz and this will do abc absolutely i read um, a book called level up which is all about a video game design i think it's especially geared to someone who is uh just a beginner in the industry and it's really professional focused such as you know big teams etc and um what is recommended in that book is that you have your one pager your 10 pager and your gdd and your one pager is exactly what you said this is what you're going to show to your marketers this is what you're going to show you to your publishers because they haven't got time to read your you know your game bible or whatever you want to call it and they're not really interested in you know does this slime do 2.5 hearts or does it do three hearts like you need to know that the person who's designing it and coding it definitely needs to know that stuff but you know the publishers they're probably never even going to play your game so um yeah it's important to know who you're making this document for so the one pager you want to have very visual very uh easy to pick up the ideas um references to you know products that are similar just so you can say um i mean we had this discussion on the Halloween talk, didn't we? Where X meets Y. <laughs> like, it sounds a bit derivative. It sounds maybe a little bit cliche. But if it gives the person an idea of what they're talking about, just like that, then um, it is it's doing its job, really. So, uh, and, you know, if you go into the details, it's obviously not going to be that straightforward. But this is the whole point. You're not going into detail in your one pager. The 10 pager is where you sort of start to go into a bit more detail about the different aspects, you know, um, what's the player like, what are the controls like, what's the world like, etc. Uh, and then the GDD is reserved for the whole, uh, just everything, you know. This is the slime does 2.5 hearts worth of damage. This is absolutely everything in your game uh, lined out from start to end. As much as, you know, physically possible. Sometimes, like you said, scope changes, stuff comes up. You realize that you've missed something. I'm sure that happens from time to time. Um, but, yeah, that was how he sort of said you should plan your different documents. You've got to really think, who are you making these for? Yeah, I think that's a central question to the whole thing. Right? Is who the hell am I making this game for? And then who's going to work on this game and what language do they use? to understand what I'm talking about. Because then yeah. that's when the one page versus 10 page thing comes into account. Exactly. But not just the game. Who is the game for? It's also who's the document for, you know? Yeah. What is my audience for just this document itself? Because, <clears throat> you know, not everyone wants all the details and some people do want all the details. Yeah, I mean, I think as well, like, you have to do that with scope as well. Like, where I see most ideas of scope and MVP or minimum viable product fall down is when you're saying, okay, well, I'm going to put this thing in and there's all these other things I have to put in. So the way I'll reduce scope is that I'll cut out a bunch of these things and only focus on these things. But that's based on the presumption that all things are created equal. And there's a lot of hidden costs associated with each type of thing, especially with like, okay, so it takes me two hours to implement this thing. Um, but this thing I've implemented in two hours is not very customizable. It's very rigid because I've only spent two hours implementing it. It works, but I can't customize it. Also, um, Sarah, who's the art person, 
will not you know how to use this thing because the interface is like half terrible cocked up thing that I made in two hours. Some values are hard coded because I haven't had time to make an interface for them. So like there's all these hidden costs about, you know, if you want to make something more flexible, there's more costs for that. If you want it to be easily usable for other members of your team, there's um, more costs for that. If then it gets to the designer and they decide to change a bunch of things, there's more costs for that because maybe you have to implement animation features that aren't in yet or interfaces for other like artistic things that the artists might want. Um, so sometimes you you look at something that's very simple and you say like, oh, it's got little scope because it's a simple thing. But you've got to work into account like who is also going to be using this thing in your team? How is the player going to be using this thing? Like the scope kind of expands. Um, kind of like the door problem where you're trying to figure out like how are people going to interact with the door? But it's also a case of like, how is the level designer going to use the door? How is the programmer going to use the door? How is the artist going to put art for the door? How is the door hooking up to the sound system? So like scope can expand very rapidly without it really being obvious that this thing's going to have a lot of like extra work attached to it. Yeah, I think it's, it's a planning for uncertainty and unpredictability but also taking like a collaborative approach in when you are planning taking into account you know people's different strengths and needs and stuff like that and that's a sign of a good like project manager or producer as well is able to plan in such a way yeah it's really interesting i was watching a talk by jesse shell and he he manages a games company as well and he um he was he was saying it was really important to train how well your staff are, how good your staff are at predicting how long it takes them to do stuff, which is such a random skill. But especially in the tech world, it's so easy to be like, hmm, probably take me an hour. And then three days later, you're pulling your hair out and you still can't figure out this feature. So it's, yeah, it's, it's such an interesting um skill that I you know you don't really even really think about it but I think it's part of the problems with tech it's just I find it can be really unpredictable to know how long it takes to do something sometimes you can bash something out in an hour and it's done and there's no bugs sometimes it runs first time and you're just like wow I am a god <laughs> and other times it's just like you are debugging for hours and you just cannot wrap your head around why it's not running I mean that's Part of the reason what you uh, yeah, like most of the time you can knock something up that fast. It's just we've all encountered that thing with software where you're like, but I want to do this thing, and it can't do this thing. And I think that's kind of the the hint that somebody's just knocked it out and there hasn't been any excess because like yeah, it would take me like two hours to make this thing, but it could also take me like five months to make this thing. It's just the quality and the difference in user experience will be like vastly different between the two versions. It's very true. And you get diminishing returns on polish as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like you said, you can bash some out and it kind of works in an hour. And then to make that look absolutely gorgeous will probably take you the rest of two weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily diminishing returns. I think like you seek like a good increase at the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like after that, it's like random increases because I don't know, maybe you figure something out that makes people's experience like four times as better. And that suddenly justifies the last two months of work but true yeah like i said it's unpredictable <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think you know you need to be careful with that because then you end up with things like crunch as well um and we've heard enough stories of that recently of like how poor project management and poor prioritization of different tasks can lead to stuff like that as well and i think it's like you're saying dan it's knowing your team very well and you as the lead understanding you know all the pitfalls and just having that empathetic approach um but i do like that point about like you know glenn you're saying about like user experience and user needs i think that's a huge thing you've got to consider very early on in your gdd but also when you are doing the whole minimum viable product thing um because you know that's more about seeing what features do we want to include or need based on what the users want um yeah. yeah, and seeing what friction points come up out of that, maybe do some journey mapping and things like that. But it's, it, it can be quite scientific in its process of like, you know, we've got this hypothesis about the players will put in these features that can meet those needs in our game. And then you test and then you repeat the whole thing again, rather than just having this linear type of thing. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think like not just the end user experience, but also um, if you're working solo, your own experience. Like if you put in a feature, how easy is it, is it for you to actually use that feature? Especially with uh, um, programming, like you might want to add some more stuff for customization to make it easier. You might want to add some plugs for like the sound guy to do his thing. So it's making sure that you're just afterwards taking the time to plan for testing user experience within your team, whether you're solo or with other people, um, or with uh, end user kind of requirements and needs. Yeah, I remember, so recently I went to a UX workshop um, by Anissa Sinisa, who's a great user experience in UI designer. Um, and she was talking about like paper prototyping, which she made us do. Um, so, you know, we came up with a game idea and then paper prototyped it and she was like, it needs to do these certain things, your prototype. And it was really interesting going through the process of designing a simple prototype for a simple action um, that you want the players to do in an environment where there's little friction or any things that will mess up the user experience. Like, even in my group, we forgot to put like the back button sometimes. Um, and I think it's when you're planning these things, it's kind of taking into account you know, the small things that you might forget that can really mess up an experience for the player as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's basically, like, to a degree, everyone's role to kind of figure out those things. Uh, maybe someone specializes it more than this. Yeah, and, oh, God, I hate it. <laughs> I hate writing, like, this button goes back, but only if you've gone forward, and sometimes it's green, but it's red here, and it's grey because you can't click it yet. And, like, even, even the examples I give don't even scratch the surface of how terrible doing this stuff can be sometimes. It's also, like, planning for what your user could do. It's like, we'll give them uh, a ladder, but they might throw the ladder in a fire or chuck it off the building. And it's like, oh my God, you have to account for everything. And it can be, it's definitely a skill, like seeing all of that in advance. Uh, I think the more times you do it, the better you get at it. But it's not It's not very fun. I'm not gonna lie. I do not enjoy writing GDDs in the slightest. I think they're important, but yeah writing them can be really challenging yeah i think it's understanding you know they're not the only way to plan and if you have a team that doesn't like them you know maybe revise your gdd or try another tool as well um also just make that whole user experience of playtesting thing part of your early design process in general just because that helps you iterate as well. Because I know what some studios like Supercell do or Bosses Studios do is um, they do game jams on the regular and they just throw out concepts and, you know, not the best quality builds, but it's to try out new ideas and new designs. And from that, if they're like, hey, this thing could potentially be something, well, then make this a project we'll work on as a company going along. So it's kind of, initially it's about... I mean, of course, if you've got an IP you're working on for, like, a publisher, it's completely different. But if you as a studio are trying out different ideas, that's one way to go. And then you also all work on a project that you're kind of all keen about or interested in, rather than looking at, like, a bland GDD, which no one cares about overall. Well, this is the other thing, you know, I said I do not like writing them. You've got to get people to read them as well, which is a challenge in itself. You know, you can make yeah. something that is a monster. It's gigantic. It has absolutely everything in. But if no one reads it, you might as well not have written anything at all. So there is also some skill in having, you know, brevity or, like you said, use pictures, make it look nice, make it easily digestible for the whole team. Sometimes, you know, you might you might even have a different document for your coders to what you do for your artists because your artist doesn't really care about implementation. All they need to know is, you know, does it have to sparkle, twinkle, does it animate, you know, what colors do you want? Not that I necessarily endorse splitting everything into different compartments based on who is reading it because that can give the designer a lot of work if you're having to do this thing five times over. But um, it's definitely worth considering and like you said it depends on your team as well so <laughs> trying to make your gdd interesting as horrible as that sounds yeah i remember my old studio so i didn't work with the gdd because that wasn't my role but one of the things i had to do was research you know the demographic for a certain game and their interests in a certain area of media 
Um, and something I would do is use blog posts a lot. Um, so this was really helpful for like supporting the GDD or like the pitch later on. Um, because blog posts were great because I'd be like, hey, I found out this thing. And then underneath you could have discussions with everyone about certain ideas. And then if there were meetings later in the week, we'd bring up a conclusion we came to or to an idea. And then that could help guide the vision or help us think of certain tasks to put on the Kanban board and do for the later week. Um, so I think, yeah, as much as planning is great, there's an element of experimentation to planning as well, alongside structure and other stuff that comes with it. Yeah, it's like user experience, and it's almost like a game. Like people walk into your planning, and like some people won't read the tutorial, and some people like won't listen to the audio tapes, and you know. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> the other thing I, I generally find is a, is a major issue is that um, stuff in your GDD uh, is generally out of date as soon as you write it. Uh, like I've I've been in, on a project before where there was a wiki for the project that was meant to detail the implementation from the designer to the programmer of all the stuff that's that's in it. So obviously I go into this thing, it has a detailed specification, I start implementing it, and then I run into like a question about one of the things, so I go and ask the designer and he's like, oh yeah, we, because uh, you're new to the project, you don't know, but like we changed from using the wiki like uh, two months ago and none of the stuff is relevant anymore. And I was like, okay, so where's the new version? He's like, oh, it's on my laptop on like a... <laughs> <laughs> on a word document i was like well that's wow so but it was because the wiki tool was like it wasn't user-friendly to him so he'd resorted to whatever was the most convenient thing for him to use so which then caused issues with stuff not being in the right place and being out of date um so i think with most planning tools just making sure everyone can use it really easily and conveniently like if it's something that just your programmers can use um, people probably aren't going <laughs> to use it. Absolutely. And this is why I was saying Trello, you know, I could use Hack and Plan. It's robust, but too robust, and I just got lost in it. And I think a lot of other people would as well. It's interesting that you said, talked about wikis. I personally have never used one for sort of a planning a project out. It seems like I, a lot of overhead. Yeah, I, I wouldn't ever use it myself. But. Same. I, I hear there's a problem with like orphan branches where you, you write an article and you can never find it because it's just not linked oh, to anything yeah. Yeah, ever. Yeah, as well. Uh, that was not a pleasant experience. But. Yeah, just navigation, I imagine, is horrendous. So yeah. <laughs> I would not recommend those either. But again, some people do use them clearly because i've seen them popping up so it's why like i if i was going to do something at least to make sure it was in a cloud file because having everyone have a separate version of like whatever it is you're working on is horrendous and having some weird like gatekeeping technical knowledge for them to actually edit the things is not great either um Oh yeah, I know. Like some come well, there are some software tools out there for like project management that are based on gamification. Um, I don't think many game developers would enjoy that. Um, but it's um something some companies use as well to help with motivation and encouraging people to engage with, you know, the GDD or other parts of project management going ahead. I think it's always going to be a struggle, but I think, you know, that's what you work on as a team to kind of see how can we all ensure we're on the same page at least and if there are changes how will we all adapt and you know work from that without it kind of stumbling the boat or causing crunch later on i want to talk about meetings i find they are an interesting beast <laughs> yeah um uh, we, should, we should probably talk with like about what is done in the industry so, I mean, Nida, do you have experience with how the meetings are like in a sort of professional environment, as it were? So, disclaimer, Ronnie worked at one studio, um, and it was mid-sized rather than AAA or indie. So, my experience was more meetings are great. Um, we didn't have too many. It's more like if you needed them, you'd slot in a time for like half an hour. Sometimes they last for five minutes. Sometimes they'll have like Skype calls with people in other studios you know like your studio but in another country type of thing or with publishers and stuff like that but i can understand like the distaste for meetings as well because sometimes they're just sitting there and you're like what am i doing here we could have just had a chat you know 
on like Discord or something or Slack and this would have been resolved in like five minutes. I think it's more when you're yeah, coming up with a plan for a meeting being like, do we need to do this or can we discuss this in another way or at another time? But um, from my experiences, so from the projects I worked on because of my role, so I think a lot of it is role dependent as well, like how many meetings you have. It wasn't too bad. Like I was usually there to present new ideas or help build on other ideas that the people had. Um, so I think meetings are great to like confirm things or maybe just discuss new ideas that you feel like you can't talk about through typing, but also understanding that you should only have them if you think you really, really need them because that time could be dedicated to working on other parts of the project as well, especially when you have limited time going ahead. Yeah, and I think uh, people generally know when a meeting is like necessary or not. At least that's been my experience. I've had meetings where um, the people who've organized the meeting have no idea why they're there. The people going to the meeting have no idea why they're there. And you just come out of the meeting thinking, well, I hope that was useful to someone. Um, because I think most of the people in that room were just repeating things they already knew. I've had a lot of meetings where it's actually useful because at least like everyone comes out thinking like, well, we, now we know what's going on kind of thing. Um, I think they're a necessary evil in most cases. I think people tend to know when a meeting's needed, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. It's just like, it always feels like a bit of a time sink. I think meetings meetings can be great in the form of like brainstorming session or workshops like really early on, when you want to throw ideas down and try out different things. So like during the experimentation phase, they're great, or you know, if you have a solution you want to fix, they're great. But I think when it comes to like presenting ideas or you know, some meetings you just don't need to be in type of thing. Uh, sometimes maybe it is just the producer and the leads and that's fine. But, yeah. 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 It's been in. You got Some of the worst meetings I've been in, not necessarily, like, they're not worse because there's been some bad stuff between people. They've just been worse because if there's no, if, if nobody knows who's responsible for making the final decision, um, it can just turn into like, hey, this is a problem. Maybe we can do this. Maybe we can do that. And you can come out of the meeting feeling like there wasn't really an acceptable resolution because no one was willing to say like, well, let's do it this way. And, you know, we'll do that. and We'll do this. And we'll try and like make this thing. And, you know, we'll talk about it next Tuesday and see what we've done and what changed. And because I think that there's a contrary thing where like you don't want people not to feel like they can speak their mind. Um, so you need like somebody who's almost willing to take responsibility, but also who's not just overruling everything. So people feel like they can say like, this isn't working out and have that feedback taken into account. But at the end of the day, someone needs to be responsible for saying like, this is what we're doing now. Who should do that? Um, teams I've been in before. Um, I've not, <laughs> so, <laughs> there was a team I was in before where I always looked at the designer because they were like, the person who was meant to be making the design decisions and they were looking at the uh, project owner who's obviously financially responsible for the project and the project owner was not committing to anything so obviously it was like a weird experience um so i think maybe at the start of your project you need to decide like you know is it is it the project owner who owns the product at the end of the day who's like making all the top level decisions or is it the designer you know like <laughs> there almost needs to be this thing of like, hey, like, for better or worse, you need to make all the decisions on this, your lead on this. And that's why I think sometimes knowing the roles, and uh, not rules, but roles, uh, before you go into a meeting for like who's got the end say in something, even though you're all discussing it equally, can be good just to have like a preset notion of like who makes the decisions if we all can't agree. Yeah, and it's kind of having, you know, a set goal in mind of this is what we want out of it as well. So therefore, there will be at least someone saying, this is how we're meeting this goal for the next meeting or whatever. Or even like a respect thing to say like, hey, I don't think this will turn out good, but I respect you as a designer to, to go with you on this. Um, and I think that's something that you can only develop between people to say like, I don't think this is going to work, but I trust you enough to do whatever you say and like yeah, my and thinking about it 
it's a huge part of design as well. You're like, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And you make it and you're like, oh, my God, I was wrong. I was wrong this whole time. Yeah. And now I have to tell people to fix it. Oh, God, that's like yeah. the worst feeling. And I mean, but that's part of the other end, right? That if you yeah. if you make that decision and then you realize that it's actually not working out, being able to say like, okay, the meeting next week, I've actually realized <laughs> it's not going to work out. <laughs> And, and be able to talk about that. Um... Definitely. Um, it's odd because with me working remotely from, like I said, there's me and the writer that are working on this project, basically. We can, <laughs> there can be like months between us actually speaking at some points because, you know, I'll know she's working on this part. I'm working on my part. Um, on the Google spreadsheet that we have, if there's any like tiny notes that need to be sent to the other person, we've actually got a little area within the spreadsheet where people can, you know, write to the other without having to instant messenger or anything. So, for example, if I've written something new, I can I can let her know. Oh well, please can you just proofread this part? Can you check over this part? Make sure this is okay. And then nowadays we only do meetings for these big momentous decisions basically there was a huge rework of about uh, probably a quarter of the dialogue uh, which takes place all in one specific area um and yeah the writer took that on and she said when she'd finished it she said we need to have a meeting just to make sure that we've still got all the bits that you want to have in you need to recognize what's not in there anymore and because i was doing all the implementation i needed to know exactly sort of when stuff happens etc so um yeah i think you're right that in that regard where you know when you need to have a meeting um i guess the question is with like weekly meetings um are they necessary like early on i thought it was good to just you know check in every now and then to make sure that you know we were both on the same uh wavelength to see that we'd both been you know what we'd both been working on what we managed were there any problems that came up and i think having that regular communication can be helpful but at the same time it actually wasn't really necessary a lot of the time because if we were proofreading each other's writing, I know this is a very specific scenario, but if we were proofreading each other's writing, it wasn't like we were going to sit there and read it while we're on the chat. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. its not like a design decision where you just kind of throw it back and forth and you, it's really malleable. You need to go and read these pages of dialogue and then sort of properly look through it, proofread it, send it back with thoughts. And it just wasn't a very productive use of time. And now whenever we have meetings, I try to make sure that if I have anything I need to say, I will have it all in notes, bullet pointed. I will know the order that I'm presenting them in. Um, and it just, it saves your time. It saves their time. You manage to get through it quickly. You're not rushing necessarily, but it's just efficiency, I imagine. And, you know, <laughs> communication is so important when you're making these games in big teams. It's a huge part of it. So making sure that you do have enough time to communicate, but, you know, don't necessarily. <laughs> well, it's quite interesting, actually. I, I'll talk about Jesse Shelligan. He says, over-communicate, over-communicate everything. You know, if you think you've said something, say it again, and then say it one more time, and then tell them to say it back to you, just so you know <laughs> that you're both on the same page. Um, I thought that was a really interesting concept. Yeah. Is it myself? Yeah. Definitely. I think, like, I've actually run into that where uh, another project leader was working on a project that I was assisting with, and her uh, interns had no idea, like, what they were doing. Um, and she had that thing where she didn't get people to, she didn't ask people, like, what they understood to be, like, what she was saying. Um, so, like, she'd say, do this document, and they'd write a document, but it'd be from, like, their own perspective but it, it was like an academic versus engineering perspective so what she'd get would be completely different to the idea that she had in her head um but her perspective on that is like well i don't want to treat them like children i don't want to say like you know what do you understand of what i said you know kind of thing she didn't want to like pressure them too much and i think yeah i see that in a lot of like leaders where they just they don't want to like they see it as like babying people but i don't i could see it as being condescending it's how you approach it. Like, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, like making sure you're both on the same page is very different from like uh, babying someone. Yeah, I think 
you know, coming back to planning, it's like, you know, you can have all these great documents, great tools, but a great, I don't say leader, but someone who's, you know, doing the overall seeing uh, is very much important too. It's not about this hierarchy. It's about, you know, someone who's able to compartmentalize and have this vision and use that to guide how people work in the team or what tasks they can do because that can essentially make or break your game yeah. even if you have all the fancy words in that with hierarchy it was actually on it was your twitter feed i'm positive nida and uh, you were talking to somebody who was um about project management and one of their points was that the project manager isn't necessarily a manager in sort of the traditional regard where they're on top they get the say of everything and you're on the bottom and you have to do what the manager says it was more that the project manager is a team player sort of on the same level as everybody else but their job is to kind of make your life easier so that you know this is what you should be working on now and then that means that this person can be working on this so everything's flowing smoothly i thought that's a really important perspective not to sort of not that I've seen it because I haven't been in the you know the professional um, game development scene, but to not see your manager as like this dragon breathing down your neck, mm-hmm. but more as someone who's there to help the whole team out, basically. Yeah, it was with our, our lovely friend Hannah Rose, who's a designer. Because um, well, the conversation was around, you know, what can I do in game jams when I've done a bunch of different things? And she was saying, can be a project manager and you can try out, you know, supporting your team through it. It's not about telling them to do X, Y, and Z. So, yeah, I strongly agree with that point. You know, leadership is important. It's just the route that you take to doing it. Um, It's a big factor in planning as well as you go along. And not just in pre-production, but throughout the whole development process, all the way to shipping and then the live updates and other things as well. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like being the human server, right? Where all the clients are connected to you, and you have to, like, do the go-between communication between them. I think one of the early times I saw something like that was uh, was in a Fallout documentary. It was over Fallout or Skyrim. Um, but I think I saw, like, one of the Todd, ha- Todd Howard's jobs as such was just going around to each kind of cubicle and making sure, like, everyone was making the same game, because... If you have a bunch of concept art and 100 people working on a game and you say it's a fantasy sword fighting game or like an apocalyptic shooter game, like everyone's going to have wildly different ideas of what game they're making. So yeah, just having somebody who's like the uh, collective brain of, uh, <laughs> of the project rather than necessarily like the boss or something. Yeah, and it is a huge responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, yeah. I guess that leads me to my question of like, you know, if you were to give tips about planning or project management, just like a bullet point or two, how would we sum up what we've said today? Make sure you clearly define your communication and some people communicate in different ways. Um, Make sure if you have a tool that it's easy to use for everyone and that everyone knows what's expected. If you feel like something's not working out, then it's everyone's responsibility to fix it, but maybe you'll have to say something first. I don't know. I would probably say make sure you manage your pipeline properly. And we didn't really touch on this, but (laughs) my biggest problem is not building towards the MVP, the minimal uh, viable product. If you can get the MVP out as soon as possible, then it means you can start to test the cycle of your game and then you can get a lot of feedback from that i've not been able to test my game for a year and a half and it's driving me crazy and if there are huge fundamental flaws then you know i have delayed that to sort of catastrophic levels um it's been a bit of a struggle with this being uh, a sort of narrative project the script has kind of taken the priority as it were um which means that implementation sort of came last. But you can't just read the story and be like, yeah, I did it, because you can see where all the answers go. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, it's been hard to test. I would try and make sure you work towards your MVP as soon as possible. Uh, just make it run very bare bones and then sort of work on the details and the polish. Um, and, yeah, organize your pipeline. Make sure everyone is on the same wavelength. I had a game jam where we were making a top-down shooter and 24 hours in, someone had coded a platformer a 2D platformer <laughs> yeah 
communicate, over communicate, and finally, your memory is terrible. So write everything down. Like the CDD is there so that you can go back and look at everything that you thought. Oh my gosh, I forgot that this is supposed to, you know, glow red when you hit it. Anything. It could be any tiny detail. Um, if you write it down, then it's there, and you know you'll never forget it. Do not trust your memory because human memory is naff. <laughs> <laughs> just to add on to that quickly i think it's also like if you're writing a description or like a specification for a certain thing um programmers artists musicians will all have like different things that they want out of that specification so if you're not one of those getting extra feedback on that is always good um yeah just on that point of mvps i think we did brush on it slightly earlier but i do like your point you know mvps be quick just get something out there and then you can work on it and building it later on like during the recent jupiter hadley game jam we were having this discussion with quang who made the mau mau castle game um and he was talking about how like with game jams if it's a two-day thing or 48 hour thing what you do is in your first day you you make your basic build um and you can test that a little bit if you want but it's the second day of a game jam where you kind of polish and do all the flashy nice stuff but so if you don't have bare bones products you're not it helps guide your vision as well and it's without it it's going to be hard later on where you probably end up losing a lot of money if you don't test as you go along um and onto that as well like your mvps about seeing how your users respond or feel and if their needs are met but also through your mvp you also understand the user experience of your actual staff as well like you know how are they finding the process of building this game as well um because, you know, the user is very important, but so is the health of your team and what they can give to the project. Yeah, that's very true. As a follow-up to my horrendous nine-person game jam experience, <laughs> what happened was somebody spent one of two days working on an algorithm for the uh, how often monsters should spawn in this endless uh, shooter, as it were. And um, that day of maths never got implemented. And uh, I think half of the music got implemented, three sounds got implemented, and, you know, the, the monsters never got implemented. And it was just tragic to see all these people's hard work not, you know, get finished in the time of the jam. So that's the other thing. MVP makes sure that you've got summer. Might not be everything, but you've got something. Yeah, and, like, don't place too much emphasis on realism. Like, if someone tries to write an entirely clever AI for a jam game, you might end up with something that works exactly what they intended it to do, but it might not be fun, because people don't want a fair fight, typically, in most video games. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just sometimes, like, the sim like you can do the simple things and then work out how to make them fun. Because maybe you have like a brainless AI, but you have like 300 of them running at you at once, and that's fun, you know? Definitely. Prioritize your time and use it well. I think that can sum up the whole of the episode today. <laughs> Just prioritize and use your time pretty well. And plan and keep on planning and iterate on that plan as you go along. Yeah, like they, they call it like a living estimate or a living roadmap where. It's like an initial estimate, but every time you do something, you can revise that estimate. So when you're estimating things or planning things, don't be afraid to just say something, but then change it later. Like it's, it's a case of planning. It's just saying, for now, this is what we plan to do. Great. Um, well, thank you all for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on the Level Edit podcast. You can follow us at Level Edit on Twitter. Peace.